it's Sunday, 2nd of February, Groundhog Day, and time for another episode of View from Military Mind. Let's move out. During the Civil War, it was called Soldier's Heart. After World War II, they called it Gross Stress Reaction. It's been called Shell Shock, War Neurosis, and Battle Fatigue. Today, we call it Post Traumatic Stress Disorder, and it affects one out of every five warriors returning from battle in Iraq and Afghanistan. It's not a wound that you can see, though it can have an even more significant impact. Post-traumatic stress disorder can prevent warriors from living a normal life, hurt their relationships, and affect their ability to hold a steady job. The Wounded Warrior Project offers comfort and support for warriors with post-traumatic stress disorder and all other scars of war, whether those scars are visible or hidden. Find out what you can do to help, because for warriors, the greatest casualty is being forgotten. Please visit WoundedWarriorProject.org. All right, welcome back, and it is Sunday, February 2nd, Groundhog Day. I wonder how many things are going to keep recurring on us constantly. seems like this impeachment thing is doing that to us, but like I've said before, I'm not going to get into that. Everybody and their brother's covering that kind of thing. But what we will cover today, one of our first topics we're going to look into is West Point, West Point Military Academy for the United States Army. Uh, Is that going to be our new liberal indoctrination center? We'll get into the story about that and a new diversity thing that they're working on. They've actually had a stand down on. Then we're going to get into the price tag of fighting in Afghanistan. What's it costing us there? And is it worth it? Uh, We'll give you the viewpoint of one commanding officer or or former former commander, what he thinks of that. Then we'll get in why should the U.S. stay in Afghanistan? get the viewpoints that are out there in the the mainstream at this point in time and we'll give you what our opinions on that is too then last but not least in our post log we're going to get into a a quick review of what we're learning uh, president trump's state of the union is going to be and we'll also get into some of the special operations uh, reports see what's going on with that but so i hope everybody's had a great weekend out there enjoyed a little bit of the groundhog day we've had some beautiful weather around the country we've had some really weird weather around the country just a little side note administrative note here for uh, view from military mind we are changing around our formats a little bit we're doing some experimentation uh, we're also going to get into using a new process and recording system so bear with us if there's any glitches or errors on things uh, we're trying to work through this learn the system see how it's going to work for us hopefully it's a better system and we'll see how that works out so just hang with us here Uh, We'll get into this first story here with West Point. They had a stand-down day for honorable living. Called it the Honorable Living Stand-Down Day. supposed to deal with sexual assault and sexual harassment. Teach the cadets how to deal with that and how to recognize that and to work through with that. There's been some interesting 
words come out concerning that. Uh, some people aren't too happy, thinking that it's going to be a, a, a indoctrination center for something that a lot of people don't like. Basically, from their point of view, which is the uh, newspaper or newsletter for West Point, they're saying that it's a the Honorable Living Stand Down Day was a massive full day operational pause that served to enhance the serious messages presented to cadets. Uh, it allowed them to focus on intervention, prevention, and elimination strategies for these nationwide concerns. Superintendent Lieutenant General Darrell A. Williams addressed the cadets and staff at Trophy Point, an outdoor location rich in military history that overlooks the Hudson River. General Williams stated, As we settle into another great academic year, we refocus on the issue of preventing sexual assault and harassment. And in a greater sense, we cultivate a culture of character growth. We are calling this day Honorable Living Stand Down because sexual assault and harassment are symptoms of a people problem that prevents us from living honorably and demonstrating excellence. Nearly 300 cadets reported unwanted sexual harassment and contact within the last year at West Point, which shows that some people are not adhering to the seven Army Corps values. Loyalty, duty, respect, selfless service, honor, integrity, and personal courage. Cadets are expected to apply these values towards their everyday personal and professional conduct, and the U.S. Military Academy provides a foundation to develop them. And he goes on to say, Just as we very brave people stood here in mutual support against tyranny more than two centuries ago, we have an opportunity today to stand in unity and mutual support of each other to eliminate sexual assault and harassment. Honorable Living Stand Down Day prompts to introspect cadets' need to redefine what it means to attend West Point, grow as leaders, and encourage healthy and positive work environments in the future. Class of 2023 cadet Patrick Elter shares his reflections of the series of speeches given by leaders and peers to include a testimony by a rape survivor. Her brave and powerful story helped cadets to include Elder reach a deeper understanding of the effects of sexual assault and harassment based on its emotional impact. It goes on and describes some of the things in the stand-down day gave cadets the tools to help them be productive leaders who were able to cease the prevalence of sexual assault and harassment issues. Uh, this required great effort and support from West Point personnel. More than 350 staff, faculty, and coaches served as facilitators of group discussions among the, the cadets. Questions that probe deeper insight into sexual assault and harassment awareness in order to hit the objectives of the day. Now, they went in and uh, they did these groups, um, did some writing, did some research into their sexual harassments. And they had, uh, they had several TED Talks were featured that the cadets attended. They included Alex Jones's Redefining Manhood, One Locker Room Talk at a Time, and Jackson Katz's Voice Against Violence Against Women. It's a men's issue. Now, where the big concern and issues coming in from this, as Breitbart Media had reported, it turned into a big curriculum that was denouncing toxic masculinity. Breitbart goes on to, to say that you know some of the things that the cadets were obligated to view was Misrepresentation and The Mask You Live In, two documentary films produced by Jennifer Savile Newsom, who is the First Lady of California and wife of Governor Gavin Newsom. Misrepresentation features commentary from assorted left-wing and partisan Democratic fe uh, figures, including uh, Senator Cory Booker, D. New Jersey, Representative Nancy Pelosi, D. California, Governor Gavin Newsom, D. California, Katie Couric, Rosario Dawson, Jane Fonda, Rachel Maddow, Rosie O'Donnell, and Gloria Steinem. This particular thing had uh, debuted on the Oprah Winfrey Net Network. 
the the film itself frames American society as broadly pathologized. Boy, I can't talk today. By anti-woman se- uh, sexism, they bring about there's an issue with this thing, uh, showing it to our cadets out there, creating a, a anti-male or anti-masculinity. And then they come into the other one that they watched was the mask you live in, which derides hypermasculinity and masculinity more broadly as uh, stultifying boys and men's emotional development. It features comment. Commentary critiques with the speakers characterized as arbitrarily socialized gender roles associated with manhood. They say that be a man is one of the most destructive phrases in this culture. You've got to be kidding me. Joe Ehrman, former NFL defensive lineman, goes on to say that uh, we've constructed an idea of masculinity in the United States that doesn't give young boys a way to feel secure in their masculinity. Some make them go prove it all the time. And this was opined by Mike Kimmel a professor of sociology at Stony Brook University. Uh, we've constructed an idea of masculinity in the United States that doesn't give young boys a way to feel secure. It says masculinity is not organic. And this is claimed by Carolyn Heldman, a professor of politics at Occidental University. It said it's reactive. It's not something that just develops. It's a rejection of everything that's feminine. To be quite honest, last time I looked, I wasn't feminine, uh, nor were a lot of the men that were there. It's crazy what they're coming up with here. Uh, says, throughout most of history, there's been this belief that men and women are fundamentally different creatures, and it probably begins with the Bible, said Louise Elliott. Now, she's a professor of neuroscience at Rosalinda Franklin University. Sex is a biological term. It refers to which chromosomes you have. Gender is a social construct. Okay, well, I'll be damned. I didn't know I was a social construct. Or a lot of my brothers out there. This, if we're starting to get into this elimination of the, the male standard within our society personally if i go into a combat situation i would like to have that masculinity value there in the men that are out there to lead these people and no i'm not forgetting about the women they have their standards they have their ways of doing things but why do i want to go through and change every gender under the sun into one and everybody loses their identity loses their ability to do things Uh, that'd be crazy this is just absolutely stupid. This is, a, again, a push to have no gender identities. You know, support. And it, my belief is we're trying to push the LGBTQ uh, agenda down the throats of our military personnel. Uh, this is nuts. It's crazy. I can get adamant. I get ugly about this. But this is what they're doing in our military. This is a, a an agenda that's just... It's only been in the past few years that it's really come out hard. And we have to pre- you know, thank our previous presidential administration for all this junk. They go into some of the things that uh, they did some role-playing. You know, eight topics per company, created role-play scenarios, created role-play scenarios for sexism, racism, cyberbullying, mental health, sexual harassment, sexual assault, discrimination-based, no sexual orientation. The others are great. But this, you know, no sexual orientation, I'm sorry. When you were born, God made you in your mother's womb, you had a gender. You cannot go past, okay? Get over it. If you are so mentally demented that you are going to try to change your gender because you think you're not right, you've got a problem. It's there. It's a fact. You're a boy, you're a boy. If you're a girl, you're a girl. If you don't like it, some people go have surgery and have it changed. Great. Guess what? 
you are still a boy. You're still a girl. Your physical makeup, despite genitalia, your physical makeup is still male. It's still female. Take all them happy drugs they take, they give you to change it around, and guess what? You're still what you were created as. Why do you have to go in there and change and play with things like this? It's absolutely nuts. According, back into uh, Breitbart News, they'd received comments from several West Point cadets on condition of anonymy. Cadets are prohibited from speaking with the press without the school's authorization or the threat of disciplinary action, and that is true. Uh, they just don't speak to the media without authorization. One of the cadets is, you know, I'm being taught how not to be a man. Another one went on to say, I'm going to quit West Point. It's no longer teaching me to be a leader of men. It's teaching me how to be a victim. And then a third one wrote in, says, the real bias we need to talk about is why is scandalous to be conservative in a professional environment by brave to follow the crowd and be liberal? Fourth cadet and guest speaker had us all make black power sign and yell, fight the power. What kind of bullshit's going on at West Point? This was a a center of higher learning with the highest respect to develop leaders of men in combat. What are we going to do now? Put on tutus and go out like a bunch of pandies and go, please don't shoot me. Uh, okay, I'm getting off topic here. I'm getting uh, a little aggravated with it. Of course, West Point hasn't given any comment about a stand down. Probably isn't going to. I really don't know what else to say, except this is just absolutely ignorant. Here is more indoctrination. Our our mainstream colleges are at this already, doing crazy things like this. Giving us common core math in our high schools and elementary schools. Uh, cha- trying to rewrite history in our colleges. I mean, it's it's prevalent everywhere. Now they've gone and attacked our military academy. As I was researching this, uh, I've discovered that, you know, the Naval Academy, the Air Force Academy, the Coast Guard Academy, they've all gone in, they're falling into this crazy uh, lunacy that's going on, trying to wipe out gender and trying to wipe out masculinity. You know what, people? Wake the hell up. Because this was around long before your little stupid ideas were here, and men are not going to go away, and you need men, you need women in their specific roles. Stop playing with this. All right, we'll be back. If you're a veteran looking to file for your service-connected benefits through the Department of Veterans Affairs, don't go it alone. AMVET's highly trained service officers stand ready to walk you through the process at VA regional offices around the country, helping you to navigate the complex VA system free of charge. With new presumptions for Agent Orange exposure and other conditions, AMVETs can offer you the advice you need to finally receive all your earned benefits. In 2009 alone, AMVETs helped process more than 65,000 claims and appeals, securing more than $410 million in benefits. To find your nearest AMVET service officer or to learn more, visit AMVETs.org. All right, we're back after a little pause for the cause. I calm down a little bit. I hate having my masculinity being attacked over dumb shit. Same way I hate when they attack femininity, women, with dumb shit. That's enough on that subject. Moving on to the next thing. The price tag of Afghan war exceeds Iraq. Getting into what uh, reporting daily on defense about the cost of the war in Afghanistan. And it keeps going up and going up and going up. In today's uh, Washington Examiner's Daily on Defense, it says, we've seen this bo- this movie before. We don't need the Afghanistan papers to show us that all signs are pointing the wrong way in America's longest war, now in its 19th year. 
the Pentagon's independent watchdog is out this morning with its latest quarterly report. And like the 45 previous reports, it's a litany of downward trends. Taliban attacks are up. Afghan casualties remain high. Afghan offensives are down. And Afghan security forces remain undermanned. Uh, Here's some of the bullet points. The number of enemy-initiated attacks, including those that inflicted casualties, rose in the last three months of 2019 to a level not seen since the Pentagon began tracking them in 2010. Uh, In September, the month of the Afghan presidential election, there were more attacks than in any month since June 2012. October 2019 had the highest number of uh, enemy-initiated attacks in any month since July of 2013. At the same time, the Afghan Special Security Forces conducted fewer ground operations, and only 31% of those missions were without U.S. or coalition support. For the year, fewer than half, 43%, of all Afghan Special Security Forces operations in 2019 were completed independently, compared to 55% in 2018. So they're doing less and less, unless we're there to back them up, which is nuts. It's dangerous. And it puts our guys in harm's way doing their job. And it says, while the number of Afghan military and police is up 7%, the strength of the Afghan National Defense and Security Forces stands at 775 roughly 79,000 personnel, short of its authorized strength. What are we spending the money on? What are we doing? Uh, it's now become our most expensive war. Uh, The report notes that the amount of funds appropriated for operations in in Afghanistan since 2001 has exceeded the amount allocated for the Iraq war that began in 2003. $776 billion as of September 30th, 2019, as compared to $771 billion for Iraq's entire time. What are we doing? It says every time we talk about Oversight of our efforts in Afghanistan, and this is the uh, Representative Jody Rice saying this, says, I believe we sound like a broken record. It's America's longest war, and it's held that title for a long time now. Uh, this, and again, like I said, this is uh, Representative Jody from, uh, from Georgia. He was at the House Oversight Subcommittee hearing on Afghan strategy, strategy this week. It's a long weekend, so I'm going to stutter a little bit. Uh, to date, the American taxpayers have spent $780 billion on combat operations, $137 billion on reconstruction efforts since 2002. So we're pushing a trillion dollars there. During that time, and in spite of that money, we've lost 40, uh, 2,400 Americans. And once that is often overlooked, is 20,000 who have been wounded in action, many of them very seriously. And they've come back home. We've helped them out, got them set up. But there's no reason for it. We're in an endless war there. There's no end game. Now, they're saying that there's a glimmer of uh, optimism in this. In testimony at the hearing, John Sopko, Special Investigator Inspector General for Afghan Reconstruction, author of the Cigar Report, said the U.S. is at a pivotal juncture in the Afghan war. And I quote, as he said, The potential for a peace agreement with the Taliban is greater than at any time in recent history. While reaching a settlement will be challenging, sustaining it will be very will be equally difficult. Uh, Sopko warned that Sigar is not taking a position on whether a peace agreement is achievable or practical, although we hope for both. Nor do we speculate on what provisions it should include. But what Sigar's report does do 
is highlight areas that policymakers should be planning for now because failing to plan is planning to fail. Now, they're telling us that we need another $4.6 billion in Afghanistan and perhaps as much as $8.2 billion of donor funding through 2024, uh, citing the World Bank. Uh, even in a best-case scenario in which the Afghan government's organically generated revenues doubled to $5 billion, nearly half of all public expenditures would need to be financed by donors. At some point, we've got to cut bait. They're not helping themselves. It, you know, they've got $5 billion in, in their income. But they're going to have to finance the rest of it? Come on. It's time to get out of the 5th uh, the century or wherever you're at. Bring it up. Um, now, this report comes ahead of a UN-hosted international donors conference later this year. In 2016, the World Donors Meeting in Brussels pledged $15 billion for Afghanistan. We'll see what they're going to do now. Um, if we're going to keep this kind of thing up, these, these other countries need to jump in and start picking up the tab. We've been doing this now for 19 years. This is, it's absolutely unfathomable how much longer we can continue to support this kind of crap. I don't foresee, I've, you know, I've been over there. I've seen what kind of things take place. And in my viewpoint, there's people that don't want to leave there. There's a lot of money to be made in Afghanistan. If you are a contractor, Dynacor, Axiom, L3, Kellogg, Brown & Root, Halliburton, all these big companies have got freaking money coming out to Wazoo over there, and we're paying it to them. If we pull out of Afghanistan, they will lose. They will lose big dollars out of there. So guess who's going to push to keep the, this, this silly little war continuing on? We get these reports. It's right there in black and white. We're spending money right and left and wasting our time over there. Uh, it's obvious they're not going to bring themselves up to the standard they need to be to, to take back their own country. Hell, they're even talking to the Taliban now. Guess what's going to happen? It's historical. It's been proven. They talk to the Taliban. Oh, yeah, nice, sweet, patty cake. We got an agreement. We get the American troops out there, get all of our allied troops out of there. And guess what? They're back to square one. Whether y'all realize it or not out there, the Afghan people themselves just want to be left alone. They want to be able to live, have a decent income, and be left alone. They don't want us there. They didn't want the Russians there. They didn't want Alexander the Great or Genghis Khan or any of the others there. Give us a peaceful life where we have a home, we farm, and we raise our children, and we follow our faith. Let them have what they want. If we're going to try to help them out, let's, let's go to actual real war. Eliminate the Taliban altogether. Just wipe it off the face of the earth. Glass factory comes to mind. Now, you military people that listen to it, you know what I'm talking about. I know that's a little extreme. Uh, I shouldn't call for that. But something extreme has to be done. The Afghan people themselves are tired of it also. It, if you look at what's there, it's the younger generation. That's all they've known. That's all they've seen is war and fighting. They're very impressionable. 
just like our youth in the United States, are very impressionable, and they wind up being convinced to be doing dumb things. Same way with the Afghan people. There are wonderful people. I've spoke to them. I've met them. <clears throat> and that's the basic gist I get. We want to be left alone. We want to have peace in our country. And we want to have a home where we can raise our children. Guys, we need to get out of there. Get the contractors out of there. My God. And this is a, a bandwagon I jump on whenever I'm talking to some of my colleagues and some of the people ask me what's going on over there, what's it like. When I was at Kandahar, this is just one base specific I know about, it was a 6-to-1 contractor to military personnel. You couldn't swing your weapon around without hitting a contractor in the head. And, oh, when you do that, now you're responsible to protect him and give him medical care. And God forbid if a rocket drops in. Because they're not armed. We are. Now we have to protect. We're putting our life on the line for three things over there. To protect our own people, our soldiers, airmen, marines, sailors who are there. And some contractor who's there doing the work we're trained to do. But, oh, wait a minute. we got to spend the money with this contractor who bid on the damn thing. We don't want you touching your aircraft. We don't want you touching your truck. We don't want you truck touching your radio. Even though you spent thousands upon thousands of dollars training that soldier, airman, marine, sailor on how to work on that stuff proficiently. Now, we're going to pay a damn contractor to do that. And then we're there to protect the Afghan people. And we're there to protect the base that we're on operating out of. What kind of lunacy is going on here? Uh, this particular thing we were actually warned about back in 1959-1960 by General Eisenhower, then President Eisenhower, when he talked about the military-industrial machine. And he warned us this was going to be happening if we allowed the military industries, the contractors, uh, they weren't called that then, but if we allowed them to get away with this. Now, guess what? We did. We allowed it to start happening in Vietnam, slowed down a little bit, once we started getting more active on the military front here, it's back again. Uh, you might, if this is going to continue, if you're going to let this continue on, stop enlisting soldiers. Just give it to the contractors. Let them make millions of dollars. I don't mind going to war and fighting for my country, but I'll be damned if I'm going to go fight for a contractor. He can make $94,000 a year for the time frame that I'm there making Thirty-four to 54000 depending on your rank. And when you start getting to higher ranks, yeah, you're going to start getting close to that, but not exact. So, anyway, on my soapbox about that. Uh, we are spending billions of dollars in Afghanistan, and it's like pouring piss out of a boot. Uh, it's being wasted. It's frivolously spent by that country and their politicians who have always been known to be very corrupt. Um... You have to be educated in politics and how to make your country run before you can make it run. They've obviously proved that's not the case here. Uh, they have, for thousands of years, they've always fought and been in turmoil. We're not going to change that. Whether it's for a religious base, an economic base, a political base, we're not going to change it. We're going to be just like all the others before us 
again, Genghis Khan, Alexander the Great, the Russians, whoever you have been there before. I, I mean, hell, even Hitler said, no, nah, I'm not messing with that country. It's a waste of time. We were wasting our time. They've been that way for millennia. Let have their country. Let them fix it. Let them enjoy peace and tranquility for once. All right. We're going on for another commercial break here. And when we come back, we'll go ahead into our next segment. And we're going to uh, get a viewpoint from uh, one of the generals that was there as to why we should stay there. This should be interesting. We'll be right back. For nearly 100 years, the American Legion has been on the forefront of veterans affairs in America. From the authoring of the GI Bill, to creating thousands of jobs, to getting veterans the life-saving medical care they need, the American Legion is there for our veterans. The American Legion gives veterans like me a place to belong. They help us veterans in all aspects of life, medical, financial, and even emotional. To learn more, visit legion.org. All right, and we're back. Um, get into a, a little more on the subject of Afghanistan here. Got a general view of why the U.S. should stay in Afghanistan. Uh, this turned out to be a very interesting, uh, very interesting read. Um, it uh, was put out in the Daily Signal. Um, they were talking to retired Army General Jack Keane at the Heritage Foundation event. And it's, you know, despite overtures from the Taliban and declining interest among Americans, it's essential that the United States remain in Afghanistan. Uh, over the past 18 years, Keene said the U.S. has made tremendous progress at preventing another attack on the U.S. from Al-Qaeda uh, originating from Afghanistan. But military withdrawal now, he said, would have extremely negative consequences. Keene also said his political astute resources in Afghanistan say the Taliban, the funda fundamentalist Islamic military organization that used to control the country, wouldn't win a single district in the event of an election. The people absolutely do not want them because they're living under their boot, Keene said of the Taliban. They're living under their tyranny. They're living under the fact they can't educate their children. The U.S. first took military action in Afghanistan in response to the attacks of 9-11 when Keene became the first senior military leader to go after the Taliban, which had been in power since 1996, and provided a haven, a haven to Osama bin Laden's Al-Qaeda terror network. Um, in the event Tuesday at Heritage, making the case for America's mission in Afghanistan, Keene detailed military successes and his recommendations for the future. Now, although Taliban leaders say they want to negotiate, the threat that terrorist groups Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State, or ISIS, would use a nation as a safe place, safe space, to grow is too great to trust negotiations. Keene, a former vice chief of staff for the Army, is currently chairman of the Institute for the Study of War and a member of the Commission on National Defense Strategy. Um, Keene said he spoke a few weeks ago with Afghan President uh, Ashraf Ghani, who took office in September 2014, and argues that his government is different from past administrations. But past Afghan administrations have lied to the U.S. with similar claims before, Keene said. The Afghan government has supported the Taliban by arming and harboring troops, in addition to protecting fertilizer factories that made 85% of the improvised explosive devices, or IEDs, that have killed Afghan people as well as U.S. troops. 
Um, Keen went on to say, he said, I told him straight out, you have to prove to me and others that you are different than what your predecessors have been and that you have an interest in stability in the region. Keen recalled of his conversation with Ghani and how you achieve stability in the region by supporting the Taliban is beyond me. The Taliban's top priority is to get the United States to sign an agreement to complete withdrawal of troops from Afghanistan, and it will say anything to achieve that, including promises of a ceasefire. He said the Taliban's leaders calculate that a withdrawal of the U.S. troops would produce a massive boost to their movement, as it would amount to a U.S. admission of defeat and guarantees the legitimacy of the Islamic Emirates, which is the Taliban political movement in Afghanistan. Keane said the Taliban leadership also believes that if the U.S. signs a withdrawal agreement, it would tip the political and military balance in favor of the Taliban to eventually overthrow the Afghan government. The Taliban doesn't want democracy because 85% of the government rejects the organization, making it the most unpopular insurgency of modern times. Uh, America's primary mission in Afghanistan was to prevent another attack on, US on the U.S. launched from there. And that has been accomplished. Now isn't the time to give up that position in favor of trusting the Taliban. Um, King goes on to say the mission in Afghanistan was on track with the surge of U.S. troops in 2008, but President Barack Obama doomed us when he changed the strategy upon taking office in January 2009. Fortunately, Keene said President Donald Trump understands the need for a strong military presence in Afghanistan. Negotiations with the Taliban for a peace settlement seem unlikely, but would, requ would require strong conditions such as a ceasefire, a minimum of 8,600 American troops still in Afghanistan, and dramatic changes in political and on-ground conditions. About 14,000 U.S. troops currently remain in the country. Okay, this goes back to what I was talking about before. Now, General Keene you know, says we need to stay there. We need to keep fighting with this mess. How many lives do we have to lose of American soldiers over there to keep proving that it's not going to work? These people are not going to listen to us. They're not going to... The Taliban's not going to change to save their soul. The Afghan government is so corrupt, it's not going to change. It's going to go to bed with the Taliban. They're trying to do that now. Um, General Keene brings up some very good points of why we need to stay there. However, they're tired points. We've tried to keep going. We have not been what I would call, this is my opinion, we have not been successful in making the change there that we need to have changed. We went in, we took out Al-Qaeda, the Tal or, and the Taliban early. We got Osama bin Laden. We eliminated that threat. All right. It's time for us to move on. Get our guys out of there. It's not going to change. Yes, I agree. The Taliban is going to say what they need to say to get us out of there. Okay, let's go. Let's get out of the country. Bring our guys home. Bring our women home. Put an end to this mess. Now, again, it falls right back in to something I mentioned previously in the previous segment. You know, they've been doing this for thousands of years. We're not going to change it. 
all we're doing now is supporting the military-industrial complex. All these contractors are making millions of dollars. Look, I go over there, uh, say a young sergeant, been in there, highly qualified, doing his job as a, a technical inspector, aircraft mechanic, or even an infantryman, making a third of what the contractors make. But yet you come home, get hired by that same company that was over there taking your work because of your qualifications in the military. It's crazy. So we need to come out of there. Get out of the country. We're not going to change them. Um, again, this is my opinion. We're not going to change how those people do things. We have not been successful in eliminating the Taliban from the face of the earth as we should, or Al-Qaeda, or ISIS. We've eliminated ISIS in one area, but guess what? They're like a bad infection. They show up somewhere else. So, unless you can cut out the infected body part, you're not going to get rid of it. It's going to keep coming back. So, General Keene uh, will agree to disagree. We do not need to stay in Afghanistan. We need to get out of there and come home. Uh, we need to quit losing young American lives over there. We need to quit wasting our money that can be better used back here to give our military personnel better pay, better benefits, take care of our homeless. A lot of things can be done with $780 billion. I can think of a lot of things that can be done with that kind of money instead of pissing it through a boot into Afghanistan. Um, the only reason Afghanistan hasn't done us, done us like Iraq has done is because we're still pumping money in there. We stayed there. We're still going. We need to move on out. Uh, we need to get out of Iraq. They don't want us there. Let's move out, set up with our allies that do want us, and do the defensive things we need to do to protect uh, you know, the countries that are allied with us, such as Israel and Saudi Arabia and Kuwait. Um, Kuwait loves us down there. They want us there. They help us build things. Saudi Arabia, they do too. They're a little sketchy with their, their issues. But let's go where we're wanted and where we're needed and where we get help and support. And get out of these countries that don't want us there that do nothing but take our money and want to kick us in the teeth and boot us out. I'm sorry. I'm tired of being kicked in the teeth. Let's go. Let's get out. All right. I'm moving on to a, another issue um, reported in SoftRep. They give some some basic things. Uh, it's in the, the uh, AFRICOM area of operations, the U.S. African Command. Uh, they mentioned Benghazi in 2012, Nigeria in 2017, and Manda Bay in 2020. Um, so these are just a few, or just, are just the high-profile cases where American warfighters diplomats have died in Africa in the last decade, for the most part of the last two decades. The Middle East has captivated the attention of the Pentagon and the U.S. media, Afghanistan and Iraq. But Africa has been steadily warming up, and consequently, the Department of Defense is reappraising the security of the U.S. military bases and outposts in the continent. If anything, this is where we need to be building up if we're going to build up anything. Uh, on Thursday, the U.S. Africa Command uh, Chief Army General Stephen Townsend 
appeared in front of the Senate Armed Services Committee in his brief to lawmakers. General Townsend revealed an ongoing security assessment of all U.S. bases and outposts in the region. Al-Shabaab has shown their reach and the danger that they pose, and I think that we need to take that seriously, said General Townsend. And so I'm looking with a clear eye at every location in Africa now. On January 5th, Al-Shabaab terrorists stormed the joint Kenyan-American Air Base in Manda Bay. As a result, three Americans were killed and six precious intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance aircraft were destroyed. Uh, With respect to the recent attack in Kenya, General Townsend acknowledged a gap in intelligence and security. I think it's self-obvious we were not as prepared there at Manda Bay as we need to be. Al-Shabaab managed to penetrate into the airfield. They were able to get access to that airfield, kill three Americans, and destroy six aircraft there. So we weren't as prepared, and we're digging into that to find out why that's the case. Um, Additional units have been deployed in Kenya to ensure security, but this seems to be just another case of too little, too late. People from the intelligence community have told SoftRep that AFRICOM is blind in certain parts of Africa. Attacks like the one in Manda Bay support that claim. If it weren't for a small group of Marine Raiders from the 3rd Marine Special Operations Battalion, 3rd MSOB, who responded to the attack and drove back the jihadists, the casualty list would have been longer. The New York Times was the first to report the involvement of Marine Special Operations Command, MARSOC, elements in the incident. AFRICOM assesses the number of Al-Shabaab terrorists in Somalia and Kenya to be somewhere between Five to 7,000 fighters. Okay. Again, here we're, we're getting ourselves into a situation that we either go in there, eliminate the problem, cut out the cancer, and put a stop to it, or we need to go home. Okay. Our allies need to step up if we've got allies there and help us get this done. Otherwise, let's not turn this area into another Afghanistan or another Iraq pumping billions of dollars in there with no end result and us coming home with our heads hung low and our tails tucked between our legs. This is crazy. You know, here again, we're getting people killed and the end result is we didn't see it coming. Come on, guys. We're better than that. We've got to be able to do our job. You've got to give us the assets to do the job. If you're a general officer and you're going in there saying, oops, we didn't know our assets weren't available, why weren't they? What happened? Were we depending on a contractor to do it? Or we did we just not think to bring the trained military assets we have available into country? to watch this stuff so I don't know that's answers that have yet to be answered so we'll keep an eye on it we'll see what's going on with it hopefully it doesn't heat up like things have been going uh, it starts calming down and we can get uh, get ourselves out of there or at least get it to where it's a uh, a, a tenable position so alright we'll be right back for the last segment and our uh, unit of the week and we're going to talk about uh, uh, President Trump's speech to uh, 
um, at the State of the Union. So hang on, and we'll be back in just one minute. Three tours driving Humvees in Afghanistan. Twelve years flying choppers. When my sister came back from her last tour in Afghanistan, she didn't want to talk about it, but she knew I was there to listen. Sometimes my husband still has difficult memories. They can be overwhelming. With the Veterans Crisis Line, I know where to turn when we need support. I made the call and got support for my sister. The Veterans Crisis Line is here for all veterans and their loved ones. Call 1-800-273-8255 and press 1. And we're back. We'll get into the State of the Union speech that's coming up real soon by President Trump. Uh, News, Newsmax uh, today, uh, article by Jill Colvin. Uh, tells us, standing before lawmakers in the Grand Dome Capitol, where his impeachment trial is still underway, President Donald Trump on Tuesday night will declare the State of the Union is strong, even when it's bitterly divided, as he asks Americans for a second term. After becoming just the third president in U.S. history to be impeached, Trump will try to move forward, aides say offering an optimistic message that stresses economic growth in his annual address before Congress. But the impeachment drama will hang over him as he stands before the very lawmakers who have voted to remove him from office and those who are expected to acquit him Wednesday when the Senate trial comes to a close. Any attempt to try to be a messenger for unity will surely be dismissed at a time of palpable anger and rancor, much of which he has helped generate on both sides of the divide. Senior administration officials were tight-lipped about the extent to which Trump would mention his impeachment which is denounced as a witch hunt or a hoax orchestrated by Democrats to try to undo the results of the 2016 election and harm his re-election chances this November. They stressed this his primetime speech was still a work in progress. But they said Trump sees the speech as an opportunity to talk about moving the country ahead, contrast his vision with Democrats, and try to make the case to voters that he deserves four more years in the White House. This has been a very partisan process, and this is an opportunity for him to unify the country around opportunities for all Americans, said White House spokesman Jessica Ditto. Trump will spend much of the speech highlighting the economy's strength, including how how low the employment rate is, stressing how it has helped the blue-collar workers in the middle class. A focus will be new trade agreements he has negotiated, including his Phase 1 deal with China, and the United States-Mexico-Canada agreement he signed last week. It's a familiar message to anyone who has ever turned, tuned into one of the president's rallies, but it's one the White House believes will reach a broader audience and have a more potent impact given the venue, especially among independent voters. His campaign has been courting these voters as it works to stitch together a winning coalition for his re-election. Once again, it will present that opportunity for the American people to see how much has been done that not necessarily has been showcased. This is one of the president's best opportunities to talk about his record unfiltered with a captive audience. The speech will include a section on health care. Aides say Trump is expected to go after what one official described as the radical proposals being floated on the left, including the, the call by some Democratic presidential candidates for Medicare for All. He will highlight efforts to reduce drug prices, in surprise medical billing, and tackle the opioid epidemic, urging members of Congress to pass legislation to back his efforts. 
Trump promised voters in 2016 he would offer a health plan that was better and cheaper than President Barack Obama's Affordable Care Act, which his administration has tried to gut. Trump has yet to offer any detailed alternative. While the White House said the president will have a message of unity, he will also spend time on issues that have created great division and resonated with his political base. He will, he will again highlight his signature issue, immigration, trumpeting the miles of border wall that have been constructed. He will once again excoriate sanctuary cities as dangerous criminal havens. He will again dedicate a section to American values, dis discussing efforts to protect religious liberties and limit access to abortions as he continues to court the evangelical and conservative Christian voters who form a crucial part of his base. In addition, he will press Congress to pass legislation encouraging alternatives to traditional public schools and highlight passage of mandatory paid leave for federal workers. He will try to make the case that the U.S. government is leading by example and send a clear signal to the private sector to follow suit, one aide said. He also will discuss foreign policy and national strength at length. Throughout his remarks, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, who led the impeachment charge, will sit over Trump's shoulder as a constant presence. Last year, the California Democrat created a viral Internet meme with an enthusiastic clapback gesture. The audience will include Democrats such as California Representative Adam Schiff, who prosecuted much of the impeachment case against Trump on grounds that he obstructed Congress and abused his office by trying to pressure Ukraine to investigate a Trump political rival and by withholding crucial security aid. Administration officials were coy when asked whether Trump intended to call specific members out. The acrimony, while heightened, is nothing new. Last year, Pelosi went so far as to disinvite Trump from appearing in the House chamber in the midst of a bitter border wall battle and the longest government shutdown in the nation's history. Yet Trump made no direct reference to the shutdown in the speech he eventually delivered to a newly divided Congress. He used his address to call for a new era of cooperation and urge lawmakers to choose greatness and to govern not as two parties, but as one nation. We must reject the politics of revenge, resistance, and retribution and embrace the boundless potential of cooperation, compromise, and the common good, Trump said at one point. The 82-minute speech was also punctuated by several unexpected shows of unity, including when women House members dressed in white joined their counterparts in a USA chant after Trump noted the record number of women in Congress. Still, there are plenty of subtle digs, including when Trump warned those gathered against pursing foolish, pursuing foolish wars, politics, or ridiculous partisan investigations. In past years, the White House has tried to connect with audiences at home by highlighting the stories of guests invited to the speech. In 2018, the world watched as a North Korean defector who had survived being run over by a train, stood and waved his crutches in the air in a triumph made-for-TV moment. Last year, the guest list featured several veterans who had taken part in the D-Day invasion, as well as astronaut Buzz Aldrin. This year, the White House is expected to offer similar recognition for American heroes. Through Conan, the hero dog that played a role in the 
raid that killed Islamic State leader Ab Abdu Bakhtar al-Baghdadi is not expected to make an appearance. Trump will also be continuing the tradition of hitting the road after the speech. He will travel to North Carolina Friday for a summit focused on jobs and workforce development, while Vice President Mike Pence heads to Pennsylvania on Wednesday for an event promoting school choice. And again, this is from uh, Newsbacks by Miss Jill Coven. Um, just giving an insight of what we're looking at coming forward from the President's State of the Union speech. Uh, I'm going to sit with bated breath to listen to the speech and see what he has to say. And uh, uh, next week's episode of uh, View from Military Mind will we'll give you that viewpoint from how we see it as veterans and military personnel. So as we're moving along, it's time for our unit of the week. This particular unit is very near and dear to my heart. Uh, the unit was established in 2009 in the National Guard in the state of Mississippi. Uh, it is Valkyrie Dustoff. First come together in 2009 as Fox Company. First, the 171st Air Ambulance Company. Um, first, 171st GSAB, which is General Support Aviation Battalion. Uh, first come together with for their first annual training. Had a total number of 12 people showed up for that annual training. We did a lot of our own hands-on things. Uh, we did some uh, map reading and navigation and uh, waterproofing and drown proofing. Uh, I actually did our first medical evacuation in the back of a Humvee uh, supporting of an engineer company that was out there doing work at Camp McCain in the summer of 2010. Um, the unit continued to build up through 2009, 2010, 2011, and in 2012 was deployed to Afghanistan to the um, eastern section of Afghanistan. At the time, it was RC East. Uh, there were units posted at Fob Salerno, Fob Sharana, <coughs> Kandahar, and uh, various other smaller bases off and on through the time of our deployment. We were there for a nine-month period. Um, the, in one particular Fob there, they flew 386 medevac missions and with only one loss during one of those missions, and that was a, a patient. Uh, our hearts go out to those families. They know who that is. I won't get into the details there. But they were very successful, brought everyone home, and uh, continued on. When we got home, we were reflagged to Golf Company, first the 168th GSAB Air Ambulance Company. And that company rebuilt restaged and retrained all of its new medics, new crew chiefs, new pilots, uh, acquired some additional aircraft, and again in 2018 <coughs> was prepped for deployment to Afghanistan again. <coughs> this time we went in support of the 1st Armored Division, 1st the 501st ARB, under the command of Lieutenant Colonel Daniel Artino and Command Sergeant Major Archie Deese. We were under the direct command flag of Charlie Company, first the 171st GSAB out of New York, New York National Guard, under the command of Major Jeffrey Kinnear. 
the soldiers and aviators of Gulf Company, 1st and 168th, performed outstanding in their mission in uh, Afghanistan at Kandahar Airfield, uh, performing both po- personnel recovery missions, medevac missions, and a mission as the Delta Company maintenance support team, uh, maintaining all the Blackhawks for medevac and for per- uh, PR, and assisting in the maintenance and uh, flight operations of the Apaches that were assigned to the unit and Mike Model Blackhawks. So kudos to those men and women. Um, I enjoyed my time with you. It was my last hoorah, my last deployment. And I have nothing but great things to say about the men and women of both uh, Gulf Company 1st to 168th and Charlie Company 1st to 171st out of New York um, and the, the units from Wyoming and New Jersey. Uh, that were there with us. Um, Outstanding job, folks. Appreciate your time. You're all brothers and sisters to me. I'll never forget you all. Um, As Gulf Company 1st and 168th returned back to States, we've now been reflagged as Gulf Company 3rd of the 238th GSAB Air Ambulance, and we have a long, prosperous future ahead of us. Um, The men and women who came back and who are ready to train the new folks that come in and are ready to take our places and we will provide we will continue to provide outstanding training and continue on with our legacy and our outstanding history and pass the torch on to these new folks so that's our unit of the week like i said it's near and dear to me um there's a lot of things that's near and dear to me uh as far as my military service in this country um, the biggest things that are near and dear to me are my freedoms that we have the freedom of speech the right to bear arms uh, freedom of the press all those that are listed in our Bill of Rights and our Constitution and I will strive every day to defend those Um, I don't suffer fools and stupidity very well Uh, when I look at our government officials both uh, the higher end of our military, uh, whether no matter what branch it is, and our elected officials, and see some of the stupid things that they absolutely do. That's not what we elected them for. That's not what we brought them in for. And for the military, that's not what we provided the training for. When we spend those millions of dollars to have you in the positions you're in, it's there to lead us, teach us, and mentor us. Uh, Everybody has to figure out some way to set up their life after their service. That's politicians, military, whatever it may be. But don't do it at the expense of the people who are under you or the people who's elected you to that position or the people who sacrifice time to train you to take that position. Uh, I don't know how to, to change that. I wished I knew. I wished I had that kind of wisdom. I wished I knew I had, I had that kind of outlook, but I don't. All I can do is hope and pray that something will come about to get these people's head in the right frame. I'm not asking you to be conservative. I'm not asking you to be progressive or liberal. Be a human being. Be an American. Be a brother and sister to the people who live in this country with you 
stop playing games. We, I mean, we put this country together to avoid the junk that was going on 240-some years ago, 250-some years ago in England. We wanted no part of it. What in the name of God makes you think we want some part of another country's crap now? I don't want anything from Venezuela. I don't want it from El Salvador. I don't want it from Honduras. I don't want it from Afghanistan. I don't want it from Saudi Arabia. or Af- I want none of that. I want the United States. I want America. I want what we've developed and what our forefathers brought forth to us. I want my freedoms to remain where they're at. If you come into this country, do it the right way. If you come in illegally, guess what? I don't care what any of these talking heads say. You're a criminal. You've done something illegal. You violated the laws of this country. I don't see how anything can be viewed differently. All right? Pay your dues. Come in here as many before you have done the proper way. If you get caught... Fine. Do your penance and do it right the right way next time. Alright. Um, but again, I love my country. I love how things go here sometimes. Most of the time, actually. But I'm tired of seeing the way things are being done right now. Our politicians need to stop being there for career politicians. Um, my God. You sit on your ass up in a big fancy building that's been there for a couple hundred years, making hundreds of thousands of dollars. I'm not yet figured out how you become a military, a millionaire in that time period. But just remember, the American people are getting tired of it. We put you in there, we can take you out. Just be forewarned. All right, well, that's all I have for the 2nd of February, 2020. On a Groundhog's Day, I can only hope and pray we don't have it reoccur. <laughs> of course, a lot of things have been going over and over again. But God bless everyone. Be safe. Enjoy the work week as best you can. Love your families. Hug your kids. And we'll see you next Saturday. Thank you. And God bless America. <laughs>